0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. In our last episode, we reviewed X-Men number 50 with the artist Steve Rude, our uh, artist and storyteller. Uh, Jim Steranko took over on the art back in the original books and it is gorgeous. We get more of that in today's issue. Uh, to recap very briefly, this is the middle of a storyline where Mesmero has built a city for mutants. He has captured Lorna Dane, the daughter of Magneto. Uh, To rule them Uh, The X-Men fought his mutant army Who are all apparently latent mutants Some of them have powers Some of them do not Uh, But Lorna stood with the X-Men against them Until it was revealed that Magneto was actually alive And now she feels compelled to uh, join his uh, his side. Uh, we'll learn later, this is not Magneto, it's actually a robot, but that doesn't uh, factor into today a whole bunch. Uh, today we're gonna be reviewing X-Men number 51, which is written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Jim Stranko, inks by John Tardiglione, letters by Sam Rosen, and of course, uh, Stan Lee is the editor. So uh, today's issue or episode is called The Devil Had a Daughter, which is maybe my favorite title of the book so far. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined by uh, Two friends and a new friend. Uh, uh, we're going to be featuring our interview with the incredible uh, legendary Dan Juergens today. Dan, hi, how are you? I'm good. How is everyone else this morning? We're so good. Uh, and uh, we are also uh, returning guests, uh, Stephanie Nina Pizzarellos. Hi, Stephanie, how are you?
1: Hey, welcome, everyone. Thanks for having me on.
2: And uh, Anas Abdulek is back with us. Hi, Anas. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Always a pleasure. This podcast is just such a joy. I'm so glad to have you here.
0: Uh, uh, So we're gonna do uh, some introductions briefly. I'll let each of you introduce yourselves. Let me know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And then the question uh, for today uh, is, have you ever had a crush on someone who didn't feel the same way or vice versa? Had someone crush on you and you didn't feel the same way back? Uh, Let's go in the order of Dan, Stephanie, and then Anas. Uh,
3: Hi, and do we wanna do introductions first then? Uh... Yeah, yeah. So
0: if you'll start just like, let us know who you are.
3: Okay, I am Dan Jurgens. I'm a writer artist. Uh, I have written and or drawn one of the two, just about everything between uh, Marvel and DC, just about every character they have. Probably most notable for um, writing and drawing Superman for like a hundred plus issues. Yeah. Uh, one, and part of that was the death of Superman back in the 90s. Also uh, creating, writing and drawing Booster Gold. Uh, back in the 80s and then you know on and off throughout the years Uh, at Marvel I have written and drawn Spider-Man, Thor, Captain America, a bunch of other stuff and it's sort of like if you name it I've probably done it. Uh, So that's my background. Um, Best pronouns for me would be you know he him Um, and I look forward to what we're going to talk about today.
0: Uh do you have any stories about a crush an unrequited crush for us? You
3: know, so my my particular problem with that question is I've been, you know, on the planet long enough that some of that is lost to the uh uh ashes of history. I would say, you know, I think it's more um something that I remember as as just that kind of 6th, 7th, 8th grade type era of of our, my life where you know, you're just trying to figure things out, looking around. And um, for me, it would have been, you know, maybe a crush that would last for a couple of weeks. And you would probably or I wouldn't anyway, even express it because, you know, it sort of fade and you'd move on to the next one. And even if you did have awareness of it, not really know what to do about it. So um, mine generally goes back that far.
0: Yeah, this is a very, like, adolescent question, I think, but yeah. <laughs> but a fun one nonetheless. Uh, so let's go to Stephanie next.
1: Hi, my name's Stephanie Nina Pizzarillo's pronouns she, her. I'm both a comic book writer and a prose. Pr- prose writer. Um, my most recent work is in women in comics, gumercinda's flower prose and probably most known for gene and speculative fiction for gene for dreamers. Yes. That gene, um, which I'm excited that won the 2022 Chautauqua Janus prize, which I'll be receiving this August. Um, and then Wonderful. I have a bunch, of, yeah, very excited about that. And I have a bunch of comics in uh, insider art by Shelley Bond, um, mermaids monthly COVID's Chronicles, et cetera. Um, and yeah, my background's public health by trade. I'm also a volunteer not librarian. I say not librarian because we fill in the void for not having a librarian in my kids' school. Um, I'm known as Mrs. Peanut Butter in the library. Um, for, can you call me that here? <laughs> you can not call me that here. Actually, the kids would be very excited if, if they heard about that. Um, and my crush story um, I will say, uh, I'll give you a high school one. Um, had a crush on the older uh, guy in, in Stage Crew, and his response to not having a crush back or knowing he was a senior and I was a sophomore or whatever. Uh, was that he introduced me to his brother and somehow I wound up on a hot chocolate get-together. I wouldn't even call it a date. I wasn't allowed to date in high school. Uh, we got hot chocolate and I'm he He showed up in a car. Now, mind you, I grew up in New York City. Nobody had a car. Nobody knew how to drive. I still don't know how to drive. Um, so it was an anomaly that I thought we're walking down the block. So I felt very much like Betty and Veronica. I, I'm going to say Betty. Um, and this was Reggie picking me up, not Archie. And I wanted Archie. Um, it was an exciting moment. Um, you know, we both just like, why are we here? <laughs> and I enjoyed the hot chocolate, enjoyed the company. And then it was time to go home. I was focused more on, I hope I don't die in this car. Cause I wasn't used to being in a car. <laughs> That's my unre-
2: unrequited crush story. And uh, then we'll go over to Anas. Hi, uh, my name is Anas Abdulhaq. I'm a writer and poet from Syria, and I'm also the creator of Eleutheromania, which is my very first comic book that I released a few months back. Um, it's an indie one-shot, and I'm also currently working on a bunch of other projects, including Etheris, which should be out sometime this year, hopefully. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. And for my uh, unrequited love story, I have plenty of those. Like, <laughs> Sadly, I have plenty of unrequited love stories, but... Um, one that really stands out to me is I had this like the biggest crush on someone in high school and I would be following them around everywhere, basically just trying to get their attention. And it was never really like, (laughs) there was never really reciprocated. And I think it's always easier when you're the one who has the crush because you can at least like control yourself. But when someone confronts you with their feelings and you're like, and you don't feel the same way, you just have to be like, "Mm, yeah, thanks. Like (laughs) it's just awkward. (laughs) So I much rather prefer having, Uh, having unrequited feelings for someone rather than the other way around. Uh,
0: And then lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. My regular listeners know me from this podcast, obviously. Uh, I uh, use he, him pronouns. I'm a formal Marvel Comics uh, handbook writer. Uh, I've written uh, graphic novels and memoirs and a documentary. Uh, Weirdly, and I've shared this on the podcast, the graphic novel, The Mushroom Murders that I produced this week as we are recording this is being performed in Salt Lake City as an opera. And I went last night and it's weird and wonderful. And it's such a, I told, I told my friend last night who went with me, uh, if, if my life were a sitcom, this would be the weird episode that has like the callback to season two, episode one, even though we're 10 years later, it's a, it's a strange moment. Uh, I have plenty of unrequited crushes over the years. Uh, I lived in the closet for a long time and I had a friend in high school that I was my best friend. We were very close. In fact, we were roommates all through college. And I was head over heels in love with him, but he's very straight. So there was never any chance of it going anywhere. Uh, But I remember him like telling me about dates he was on with girls and like wishing it was me and like, but you know, also pretending that I was not like, cause I was dating girls too. I don't know, weird time. We'll talk about Iceman today in a while. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's much easier uh, on that side of things rather than, you know, dating uh, someone who, uh, w- w- after coming out and someone's gay and you're interested in they're not or they're interested in you're not, that one's much more heartbreaking. Uh, when someone's straight, you can't get your heart broken because you're just it's not wired that way. Uh, interesting things to consider. Again, we'll talk about the Iceman and Polaris of it all in a few minutes. Uh, so I want to spend the first part of our podcast today talking to uh, Dan Jergens. Dan, I have been a fan of yours for decades. I uh, I have been reading some of your work. I, I'm more of a Marvel than a DC guy, but I've certainly read a lot of your DC stuff as well. Uh, when I first emailed you, um, you came to mind initially after we interviewed uh, uh, Ron uh, Lim on the podcast about uh, Marvel versus DC. Uh, I'm sorry, Ron Mars uh, about Marvel versus DC. And uh, whenever I'm emailing a creator that I've respected for a long time and then hear back, there's this moment of like, oh my God, I'm hearing from Dan Juergens right now, which is such an incredible thing. It's, uh, it's an absolute honor to have you on here. Uh, let's begin with Marvel versus DC, which is your most X-Men centric work. This being an X-Men podcast, uh, in, in that it featured a lot of X characters. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, that project and how it came to be and what it was like to work on, uh, Marvel versus DC back then? Well, first
3: of all, I'm just going to throw in a quick aside because, uh, I drew an issue of, uh, X-Men Legends that came out maybe three months ago. So I think the DC versus Marvel thing has been surpassed as far as my X work has gone.
0: That's my my next question to go to. (laughs) Oh,
3: okay. So uh, as far as the DC Marvel project and my involvement, um, Mike Carlin, uh, who is one of the editors on the book, gave me a call and said, said, need to swear you to secrecy, first of all, and, and then started to explain uh, the concept of Marvel versus DC. And it was a project that was really being put together to help retailers. Uh, at that time, there was a bit of a retail slump that was definitely starting to take hold within the industry. And, and retailers were looking for something big and something bold to, to help them out. Uh, this was also to help keep stores open. Um, you know, and I think at that time we still had more than one distributor. So Marvel and DC put this together as something to really do, you know, deliver kind of a shockwave into the marketplace. And when I say that, that sounds rather cold. They also saw it as something that was going to be a lot of fun because Amalgam was part of it. Um, and this whole idea of we're going to create this character called Access that can jump between the universes. And, and we're gonna go forward with this big thing. And right from the start, you know, even then, the idea that readers would get to vote on a, a few of the battles between the participants um, was part of it. So it was supposed to be very friend, fan friendly, retailer friendly, uh, and just definitely fit that environment of the time, which I think was very 90s um, in this industry, which, you know, this big, bold effort. Um, and that's really what it was about. And they said, we're going to get one writer from Marvel, one writer from DC, same thing with the artists, one from Marvel, one from DC, it'll be four issues, uh, kind of a jam thing that we'll all work on and go forth and have a good time. And when you hear something like that, it's not like you say, well, you
0: know, let me think about it. It's more like, oh yeah, I am definitely on board. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful read, and it, it involved a lot of uh, fan participation, which was fun. People got to call in and vote for their characters or send letters in. Who's going to win which battle? Uh, it was a way to get people really invested. It's a beautiful series, and we did get to talk about this on the podcast a little bit uh, with, with Ron, of course, uh, but it's fun, and it's fun to go back and look at little things like the the Jubilee Robin romance or, <laughs> or, uh, or yeah. some of those, those little characters kind of crossing over. Um, you, uh, you've worked for both Marvel and DC, probably DC more than Marvel. Uh, how would you compare your work at the two companies?
3: Oh, wow. I think, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to compare the work at the two companies because it spans such a long amount of time. I mean, I've been doing this, you know, 40 plus years now. And as a creator, uh, you change you know, throughout that amount of time. I don't write like I did, say, in 1995. I don't draw like I did in 1995, necessarily. Um, so you adjust. You you um, adapt and evolve, I think, as a creator. So just boiling it down to, you know, the differences between the two companies is, is a little bit hard. I would say that, um, you know, for the most part, DC had always been sort of the the quieter, more stayed company, whereas Marvel was always kind of, uh, to me, seemed more energetic and more out there. And, you know, your, your uh, chances are, if you were working at Marvel, you were probably going to be in more of a deadline problem situation because they operated historically, you know, closer to release date anyway, which meant that you were always kind of flying by the seat of your pants a little more that has pluses and minuses to it like most anything in life does sure um but you know despite it all you're still writing and drawing comics it's about telling stories and it's about trying to find the stories that best fit the individual characters
0: you uh you come from a place in the industry uh well historically at least i know the industry's changed a lot where you write long legendary runs 100 plus issues on superman or 70 plus issues on thor uh, which is such a different place than we see We see writers not necessarily, or at least rarely, getting these long opportunities to run uh, characters for long times. I love your Thor run as an example. I read it every month as it came out. The character went through so many vast changes, uh, post Heroes Reborn. And you get to take these characters and craft them uh, long term over years and years into something uh, something very unexpected. Uh, uh, I, I love I love the longevity of your work. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on uh, on what it's like to take a character and and have to write and or draw them over that amount of time.
3: I you know I think it's best for the industry when creators are allowed to do that and given that kind of room to do that, because I think um, uh, what that signifies is you have a character that for whatever reason is able to find voice with that particular character, which is so important. And, uh, you you know, I think you're absolutely right, Chad, that that is much more rare now. Um, Obviously, you know, recently Dan Slott comes to mind as someone who had a long, long run on Spider-Man, uh and is just winding up a uh you know recently but still long run on Fantastic Four, that is, yeah, yeah. Um before that, you know. In fact, it, I think
0: his I think his final issue of Fantastic Four comes out today as we record okay. this. Yeah. Okay, I think. yeah.
3: I, I know we're we're somewhere in the vicinity of that. And at the same time, you know, you had like um Bendis uh who did and mark bagley who together did so many issues of ultimate spider-man but even that is getting to be a long time ago now because it went past 100 issues but as a reader i always valued that and and i appreciated that because i would i always felt like i was getting a couple of creators who were really plugged into that character or family of characters that could kind of guide it and usher it you know i think we were all the better for if it was x-men Claremont and Dave Cockrum, and then after that, you know, Chris and John Byrne, and then back to Cockrum again, that kind of thing, where they they are really allowed to explore the characters in depth and, and do so in a consistent direction, whereas so often it is, oh, brand new creator on, you know, say Batman, and here's his Joker story, even though you just read three different Joker stories, because they were three different writers. That's a bit of an extreme, but that's really also a lot of what we're getting right now. And and I think because of it, we don't see characters develop along that slow, gradual, yet consistent trajectory that I think is so important. And for artists, it's even worse that, you know, I I constantly get in conversations with artists who are frustrated by the fact that they aren't necessarily recognized uh, or associated with one particular strong run or character or group of characters. And I say, well, you know, you have to be on a book for, say, three years and do 30 of those 36 issues. Then you get your stamp on the book. Sure. And yet that's just not happening anymore. You know, they do a set of six, then the next person does, then the next person. So I think that what it means is we have this constantly shifting marketplace where books feel like they're starting over constantly sometimes even two or three times in a year Mm -hmm. just to relaunch with you know oh you just read creative team a now here's creative team double a and and i i think that's unfortunate i think that because of that there's a lot more inconsistency in how characters are portrayed and particularly universes where it just feels like it doesn't hang together or stick together as well as it did we're we're missing that sort of sense of editorial glue that I think is very important. Yeah. I'm sorry, think, that was a very long answer.
0: No, no, I love that answer. And I think some of my most favorite recent runs are where writers, have, uh, Ryan North on Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is an example. He got more than 50 issues to explore this character. It's legendary. And I think a lot of other writers, Jeremy Whitley comes to mind with The Unstoppable Wasp or The Future Foundation, where he plans for a really long time, but it gets cut pretty quickly. Uh, and you never get to see those, those, uh, those develop. Uh, yeah. Stephanie, did you want to ask something? Yeah,
1: well, actually, along those lines, too, the Claremont run, which is this Twitter account that analyzes everything Chris Claremont just talked about how, you know, he was allowed to slowly, slowly develop that the Phoenix story when Jean Grey becomes Phoenix in a way that was very risky and probably wouldn't happen today. So uh, a lot of love today on their feed for slow, slower a storytelling with one creator. But along those lines, I do have a process question uh, for you. Um, what kind of things do you have to shut off in your head when you're just wearing one hat? Like, for example, when you did uh, Captain America, I think you, you wrote 1999 to 2000 versus 2002 to two, 2000 to 2002, you were both writing and um, drawing. I, maybe I got the years wrong, but mm-hmm. I was just curious what, what that's like. Do you have to shut certain things off in your head, step back? Um,
3: etc. You know, Stephanie, it always depends on who the artist is. And one of the things I try and do um is de- when I'm writing for someone else that is going to draw, I try and write to their strengths. So um, for example, uh the whole time I was working on Thor, if I started with John Rometta Jr. and then Andy Kubert, I I wanted to play up to their strengths a little bit and and then Uh, also get inside their heads and find out um, how do they best express themselves on the page. John's style of storytelling is different than Andy's, for example. So even on Captain America, I always tell artists, you know, I don't write this in such a way that I expect you to draw it like I would draw it. I I want you to feel involved and, and to be able to express yourself. And I am a firm believer in the Marvel style of writing, which is plot first, let the artist draw it. And that way they can be a little more expressive uh, and, and get some of their personality on the page. Then it comes back to me for dialogue. And um, I still prefer that. I think that makes for the best creative unity that one can get. And I think it also um, takes the artist and, make, and allows him or her to feel much more invested in the product and and what it is we're trying to build together and uh if they're more interested and they're more invested then we get a better stronger project coming out of it so the the only adjustment i make is i'll still have the overall idea and thought in mind for what the story will be but then in the in the finer analysis of you know story pacing and, and some plotting issues and just how certain scenes might play out, that's where I start to defer a little more to the artist in question because they're they're the film director at that point. And, and I want their personality and their strength to come through on the page.
0: So your most recent X-Men work, and I think the most recent work I've seen you do is X-Men Legends number 10. Uh, X-Men Legends for our uh, for our people who aren't less familiar is a series that goes back and explores Untold stories in the past of the X-Men. Uh, you got to work with the legendary X-Men writer, uh Fabian Fabian Nicieza. Uh, and you got to tell a story about Mr. Sinister performing some very unethical cloning experiments. <laughs> tell us a little bit about getting that gig and the story that you told in that issue. Uh, being, so, uh yeah. being that this is being that this is a 60s podcast, we don't get to a lot of Mr. Sinister yet. That's uh he's he's an X-Men uh favorite villain, but he doesn't show up for a few more decades.
3: Right. Well, it's, it's really kind of odd because Fabian and I have known each other for years and we've always said, you know, sometime we've got to do something together. And, um, you know, part of it is we were never at the same place at the same time. Uh, when I say place, I mean publisher, but we have always said, yeah, we've got to do something together. So when, um, this came up as an offer from the X office, they said, yeah. And if you want to draw this, we have this story and it's Fabian is going to write it. And, you know, we think it'll be a lot of fun. And I just said, okay, so this is going to be a chance to, you know, scratch one of those to do items off the list, which was work with Fabian. Um, And it it featured, you know, Mr. Sinister and everything. And I remember all these great for some reason in my head, I always think of Mr. Sinister as having been drawn by uh, Mark Silvestri. And that's very much how I had it in my head and uh, was a little bit of Andy Kubert as well. So it, it was just fun to draw this guy who I think of as being almost a little bit theatrical, which is why on page one, I have him just standing there holding this glass of wine and it's like, and a toast to all things. And mostly myself. <laughs> uh, and and I just love that sort of look of almost like theatrical makeup and everything. And then the, the spiky sort of Cape like thing that he wears and I just thought that would be a lot of fun. So I said, yeah, I would love to do this. And I had a great fun doing it.
0: There's a, there's a lot of Mr. Sinister love in the current X-Men universe. In, uh, in Karen Gillan's Immortal X-Men, he's doing so much fun uh, stuff. And then Zeb Wells Hellions. uh, He's a character that we've, we've, uh, we've really enjoyed watching just be horrible to everyone.
3: (laughs) Well, and not only that, there's, there's this, um, I think, fun of someone who embraces his own pomposity. So, and, and that. When you get that, um, well, think of it as though you're an actor, right? And you're on stage. That would be a fun role to play because you just get to be as out there as you can and making all these great grand pronunciations. If you're an artist, you know, that's kind of what you're looking for as well, or at least I look for is the sense of someone who's different on the page and, and is going to be that way. And plus, when they said, you know, we're going to get to see, and this is part of the hook for me. Um, when they also said you get to do the different variations on Hank McCoy, as he evolved through the years, I said, all oh, right, OK, that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely sign me up. Uh,
0: the uh, for our longer, nerdier listeners, too. You also got to use the character Amanda Mueller or the Black Womb, who's always been this kind of background uh, presence. Uh, it's a fun read. If you haven't read it, go uh, go check it out. Zeb Wells described in an interview, uh, Mr. Sinister on every page needs to chew the scenery, which is such a brilliant way of of envisioning this character. Uh, Anas, do you have any questions you'd like to ask Dan?
2: Yes, please. Uh, So Dan, you've talked about how the landscape of the industry has changed so much as in writers don't really get a chance to flesh out the characters and do like these 100 issue runs like they used to. Have you noticed a shift in the medium when it comes to breaking into the industry? as compared to when you yourself were able to like, you know, make your mark on the scene as as compared to like people who are trying to break into the, to it now.
3: Well, definitely. Uh, and, and there've been a couple of shifts over the years. Um, so for example, when I first came in, uh, there wasn't really much of a formal process in w- which you could show your work. Uh, mm-hmm. Conventions existed, but not at all like they do now. And I certainly can't think of, well, let's put it this way. If there were any kind of conventions with portfolio reviews in the early 80s, I certainly was unaware of them. I, I don't remember anything set up where editors from companies would specifically set up in another room or whatever to review portfolios. I, I never saw anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um You know, and so we went from then, which was just, you know, maybe you could go to a show and and happen to show your work uh, or go to meet someone at a store signing and show them your portfolio. That's how it worked for me. Um, I met Mike Grell at a store signing and showed him my work. Mike was the creator, writer, and writer of Warlord at DC at the time. And that's what I first started on. Um, But it was a little more you know, uh, catch as catch can back in those days, just trying to find someone that you could show your work to or find a place to show your work. Uh, Then later, as we evolved from that, publishers started setting up portfolio reviews at a variety of different conventions. I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of portfolios um, in, in those sorts of official environments where you would drop off a book or your portfolio. People would walk around and look at it and take note of your name uh, if they wanted to get in touch, things like that. And now what we have is this ability, and we have for a while now, for artists to show their work online. Um, and a lot of artists are found that way, that whether it's through Deviant Art or whatever, but places where they can put their work online, and then um, editors can go and look at it that way. And there's also, you know, such a thing as online publishing. Um, Which is another way that editors can see work. So, you know, what I always tell artists is it's vital to get your work um, in front of as many eyes as possible. And eventually someone who can hire, who can hire you will see it. Uh, Doesn't mean they will hire you, but someone who can hire you will see it.
0: Well, and it's easy to hand someone a sketchbook, uh, but the trick is you can spend hundreds of hours putting it together. They look at it for thirty seconds and say nope or yep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to that point, Chad, um, you know, if someone is showing me their stuff, yeah, you're right. Uh, I can look at it, and if I can see in seven or eight pages, generally whether or not they're ready for work, uh, which is a tremendous advantage for artists. That that allows me to walk uh, an artist over to an editor. If we happen to be at a convention uh, now that we're back up and running with conventions and say, Hey, take a look at this person's work. I think this is someone who has some value. Um, If you have anything, maybe there's a little something we can give them. Um, For writers, it's much tougher. It's, it's a, it's a harder slog. And, um, you know, and I think because the only way to judge a writer is to actually read their work. And that means it generally has to be published somewhere, some way, somehow.
0: Yeah, no one's going to read the 500-page script you hand them uh, <laughs> unless they've asked for it first.
3: Well, not only that, um, it is also problematic because I would have so many people who will say to me, gee, I have this idea for a Spider-Man story, a Superman story, a, you know, Booster Gold story, whatever, will you read it? And I'll always say, no, I can't. If it's a character I'm going to be working on, I can't possibly read it. If you Mm -hmm. have something to read that is different, um, perhaps that has already been drawn by an artist that is your own character that I can read, but don't show me anything I might end up working on.
0: When I was 16 or 17, I remember this is back in the AOL days. I remember sending I was a huge fan of Kurt Busiek's Avengers right around the same time I was reading your Thoron. And I remember sending him correspondence over like AOL Messenger or to his AOL box and saying things like, so I have an idea for like a Marvel team up series and I'd type like three or four paragraphs out. And again, these were very ill thought out because I was very young. And I remember Kurt being so lovely and like, these sound like great ideas. I hope you get to write them one day. Also, maybe that's not, you know, we've seen three failed Marvel team-up books. Maybe that's not the best thing. I remember just like thinking, oh, this guy is so lovely for having responded to me. Uh, uh, those connections with professionals uh, go a long way toward people who become future professionals. Uh, let me let me take you back, uh, Dan, if I can, to when you were a reader or a fan of comic books. Uh, who did you... Uh, who did you aspire to be when you were young, or or what what were some of your your legends as you kind of broke into the industry?
3: Well, I think uh, you know, as a young as a young reader, I was mostly a DC guy, and uh, really, I think the first artist that really kind of stood out to me um, was Neil Adams, and it was his work was so dramatically different from the other things I was seeing at DC. Uh, And his covers were so dynamic that that automatically attracted me. And so, for example, when Neil was doing his Batman stuff, it stood out so much from what had come before. It was just this this leap of, you know, several light years from where we had been that that's when I first started to realize, well, gee, there are different people that do these things because this Batman looks so different from that Batman. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you know, stimulated my curiosity to start to dig deeper and, and look into, well, now I see that this guy who does Superman is different than that guy who does Superman or here I'm, I'm picking up a Marvel book and all of a sudden Jack Kirby has left Marvel and someone else is drawing fantastic four. How can that be? You know, and, and I think it was Adams who first got me to start digging deeper. As a reader, and and to really look into the artistic differences that were there, which then led me to looking into the writing differences that were there. So, you know, then when it got into that next phase, as I started to see, uh, like Mike Grell show up at DC to do the Legion stuff, you know, sure, yeah, just so radically different. I picked up Giant Size X Men number one because I had been such a Dave Cockrum fan on the Legion, and all of a sudden I picked that oh, up. Cockrum is doing this? Well, I love his work. So, of course, I'll read it. Uh, And, you know, same thing when Walter Simonson and Howard Chaykin and others came to do their work at D.C., I found that incredibly compelling. Uh, Same thing when Starlin showed up at Marvel doing his Warlock. Yeah, yeah, Adam Warlock. Mm -hmm. And, And really what that also got me into is the notion that these people aren't just drawing they're writing and drawing their own work. And that then started to take me down a whole different road of realizing that that's what I wanted to do so I could control my story uh, and what I was doing on the page as an artist.
0: Was that your first X-Men book as a fan, Giant Size?
3: No, I had picked up um, a couple of the final issues of the, the previous run.
0: Neil Adams run.
3: Yeah, and and so I had some familiarity with the X-Men, but then, you know, just as I was getting into it and getting intrigued by it, they disappeared. Yeah, yeah. So, and we we just didn't see them anywhere. Um, I think the reprint stuff was still coming out. Um, maybe not. Yeah, so they, they, they,
0: they, this initial series ended at number 66, but it kept running. They kept putting monthly books out with new numbers on it, 67, 68, 69, but they were reprinting the old original books in right. those
3: yeah thank you Chad and and so I was still looking at that but I kind of realized that yeah but this is not looking as fresh as what the stuff I was just reading was so that when Giant Size X-Men number one came out I was just hooked right away mostly because of Dave Cockrum and a couple of the new characters which I found tremendously intriguing yeah Uh, like you know Colossus at that point was like wow this is so cool that metal look is awesome Um, so that then when the book did start coming out again, uh, I just had to buy it. And, you know, I think it was bi-monthly and the distribution was somewhat spotty. So I missed a couple issues, but I was definitely hooked.
0: So focusing on today's creators for a second, did you know Arnold Drake or Jim Stranko? Jim Stranko is still with us, of course. Stranko, yes. Uh, Arnold Drake, no. Uh, and uh, do you have any Stranko stories? We He only does the X-Men for two issues. So we're loving his art, uh, his uh, right. unconventional approach to these. Uh,
3: I, I think he is um, just an artistic master. Uh, if, if you were to, you know, look around my office, you would see I have a couple of sketches of his up on the wall, one Captain America, one Nick Fury. Um, because I think he made through... A relatively small amount of stories, such an incredible impact on comics that it, it's really hard to convey that to people who, you know, we were talking earlier about artists who have a long run on a title.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: You know, Steranko has this affiliation with Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain America, which is really built on um, a minimum of stories, especially yeah. caps. And so I, I think it's just a remarkable testament to his level of talent that he was able to make that kind of an impact on such a small body of work.
0: Well, in my understanding of Stranko, I haven't spoken with him, but he realized there's a lot more money to be made in advertising. So let's go there. <laughs> yeah.
3: Which is yeah.
0: not a terrible decision if you want to make a living.
3: No, not at all. And, and um, you know, he obviously also published... Uh, uh, newspaper, magazine kind of thing that was first called comic scene, then media scene, mm-hmm. which was something I always picked up and read. And it, it it's interesting because he was one of the first guys to realize, gee, I can cover all of pop culture this way. And I can cover the uh, intersection of comics and movies, which he was so far ahead of his time that, and I hadn't even thought of it until this moment, but he was so far ahead of his time that anyone who ha- would have that idea now, it's like a, you know, $400 million idea.
0: And do you have any Stan Lee stories?
1: Uh,
3: you know, I, I knew Stan. I worked with Stan a couple of times. And um, we, we did a couple of stories together that Stan wrote and I drew. Uh, we, you know, I worked on the, um, just imagine Stan Lee created the DC Universe project. Uh, I drew one of those stories. And then we also did something for Byron Price publications together. And uh, the the funnest thing about Stan is that, and and in the old days of sitting in your office and having your phone on your desk because there was no such thing as a cell phone, if the phone rang and you'd pick it up and, hey, Dan Juergens, this is Stan Lee. And, you know, just (laughs) that personality that he was able to exude, I mean, just came through on the phone lines. And you could be sitting there just wrestling with a page, and if Stan, um gave you a phone call it was just your day instantly got like 500 better um just because that personality that aspect of stan was there even then and did you ever get to meet neil adams oh yeah very much so. neil adams is the one artist i walked up to um and the first time i met him and i did the you know the not worthy gesture and and he ate that up, Neil being Neil, uh, which was a lot of fun. But, yeah, I, I got to know Neil, and I have a tremendous amount of respect um, for Neil based on not just his work and what he did for the medium that way, but his work that he did uh, in terms of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, even now, Neil was the guy who would walk by your table, and if I was sitting there doing sketches or autographs, he'd just stop and he'd kind of knock on the table, go, you're not charging enough, raise your rates. And and (laughs) part of that was, I'm convinced that he knew if I raised mine, he would get to raise his, right? But I think also above and beyond that, it was Neil's message of respect yourself, respect what you've done, respect what you're going to do in this industry and comport yourself that way mm.
0: uh what a treasure trove of of stories you're telling us i love this uh Anas and stephanie do you have any questions for dan
2: i i don't i just got very emotional when you were talking about that, honestly <laughs> you did a perfect spot on voice impression and i just like oh. eyes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well seriously honestly i remember one dark winter night so this is when the sun sets at like five o'clock and it's dark and I, I'm working. It had been a long day. And the phone did ring. And it was Stan. And it was um, just like, that. hey, Dan Jurgens, this is Dan Lee. And and he just wanted to talk about this story that we were doing for Byron Price. And um, that's what really does make it special. I mean, that what people tend not to realize about comics is it's a very solitary profession. You know, as a writer, you pretty much lock yourself in a room, you shut off everything, or maybe just have a little music playing as you work. Very much the same way for artists, although they can work in a studio environment, so that when you do hear from someone that you're collaborating with, you start to realize, yeah, I'm not alone. I, I'm part of this bigger effort. We're doing this together, and we're trying to make this statement on a page.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we've, I've talked to professionals who it's both ways. Sometimes there's an insane amount of communication and collaboration and other times it's, I never met the guy. I just sent my script in and 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 we never corresponded. Uh, but I I think I tend to prefer the titles where you see both people collaborating and working together. Um, just, uh, just wonderful stuff. I, I, I think you're an incredible talent, Dan. It's so wonderful getting to know you a little bit and hearing some of your uh, methods. Do you have a favorite uh, X-Men hero and villain? As a as a fan or as a writer, you can you can choose, or or as oh, an artist, sure. you can choose which uh, hat to wear.
3: You know, I I just think um, for a villain, it is hard to beat Magneto because the development of the character that I was able to see over my lifetime as a reader really was substantial. I mean, he became someone who had so much depth that, I mean, that is really if you're a writer what you're looking for. That is kind of the gold level um, that comes along with it. And I think, you know, for for a character, uh, for me, that has always changed over time. It's hard in some respects not to pick Wolverine because he became, again, such an, when he showed up, uh, he brought such a different edge and voice to the X-Men. Uh, the fact that he was older, I think was really cool, whereas they had all been a, a group of students uh, but I also will always have to say Kitty Pry because when she showed up, you know, she was young, she was something of an ingenue and the way she interacted with everybody else was just so precious. And the ownership and protectiveness that the others exercised uh, with regards to her, um, the fact that, you know, her religion, her background became a part of it and everything else. It's like that's when Chris was doing this really wonderful job of rounding out these characters as full-fledged human beings.
0: I've uh, I've been rereading Claremont's run for the first time in years. We're spending 60s we're doing 60s books on this podcast, but we're regularly talking about what comes ahead and I uh I'm so impressed with how many times he reinvented the X-Men. Uh, yes. telling the different stories, right? Uh Kitty Pride's introduction, uh, the space sagas, the Australian Outback stuff, the Genosha stuff. Like he he really kept finding new ways to make it fresh. He's in, he's incredible. We'll get to that stuff eventually, but yeah, he he's is, and one, one thing
3: I'll also add, because and I think Chris would admit to this. Um, that Chris, I think, understood his artists quite well in terms of their strengths. And I think one of the reasons we saw Chris sort of hit that level of reinvention is that he would adapt. I think the way he did some things to his artists as his artists changed over the years. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he would um, go with that. And uh, you know, and, and I think that shows incredible depth in a writer that they are willing to do that, find that voice and still make it work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good point to transition into our issue review, but Dan, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your memories. uh, what uh, what a treasure trove! Uh, just the completest in me. I have to toss out during your Thor run. We got uh, we got a great Juggernaut story too. There's another X Men adjacent uh, <laughs> story that We won't talk about it, but I'll just toss it out there. Juggernaut's one okay. of our favorites too, of course. Um, so let's uh, let's look at the uh, the cover of X Men number fifty one for a second. Uh, Starenko again. It's so uncharacteristic uncor- to the Don Heck and Werner Roth stuff that was coming just before this. Ah, uh, but we see uh, kind of a red Viking-looking guy with a very devilish shadow against the wall, uh, firing fire bolts at the X-Men who are rising from the sky. Now, in this issue, we get the we get the Eric the Red character, but he doesn't look like this, and he never fights the X-Men. So, I'm not sure what the what the hell this cover has to do with the book itself. It's a beautiful
1: you... cover, but th- I was like, "Where's Eric the Red? Where's Eric the Red?" Oh, like okay. are they fighting Hagar?
0: <laughs> are they fighting Hagar the horrible? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on this cover?
3: Uh, I, I think that I agree with Stephanie. It's a great cover. And I think also at the same time, what, what happened, and I don't know that this happened then. Uh, often the cover gets done before the story inside is done or perhaps even conceived of. This feels to me like a cover that was just generated uh, well before the interior, but I have no knowledge of that and no proof, but it's not quite as connected to what happens on the inside as one might expect. So, right. um, that's just a guess on my part.
0: Uh, so Dan, will you take us through kind of the first five pages of the book? Tell us a little bit about what happens, what your observations are, and then we'll kind of talk about it for a few minutes.
3: Sure. Well, obviously, you know, let's start with the splash page, which uh, we open up with and is this quintessential storanco splash page. I mean, we've got the the uh, title of the story incorporated into the artwork itself rather than as a standalone element. He does it as part of a background element, and we had seen him do that previously, uh, most notably in some of the S.H.I.E.L.D. work he had done. So the what I like about this is we have a white space around it, which helps to frame this piece of machinery that has the title of the story, emblazoned on it. The characters in the shot are all relatively small. So this really works much more as a graphic image, I think, that takes us into the story and and just says, um, you know, these days, if an artist were to do it, probably Magneto would take up the entire page. Whereas on this one, it's dead. Uh, Really, the key is the title, which, you know, Devil Had a Daughter. And since we see Magneto placed the way he is, obviously he's the devil uh, as it's sort of set up. Is that how we interpret this?
0: Not only not only that, but Magneto, again, we'll later learn this as a robot, but he's so extra that I think he created these letters out of metal. He's like, raw,
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just pulls us right into the story because at that time, and, and it's really uh, for people who are, uh, familiar with Will Eisner and and the stuff he did on his Spirit strip, where he would often um, blend the title into the story art and make it kind of a cohesive element. That is very much it's uh, would seem what inspired Storanko here, and it's a great vehicle to pull the reader in right from the start.
0: We also have at the credits at the bottom, it says, uh, uh, writer Arnold Drake art by, do we have to tell you? And it literally doesn't even say Stranko's name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, keep yeah. going for us, Dan.
3: Right. And no, it's, but that's also kind of testament to the fun that Marvel would have with their credits at the time, uh, where if it was done by, you know, swinging Stan Lee and dashing Don Heck or, you know, uh, uh, Jolly Jack Kirby, I don't think he was jolly. I think
0: Jack, Jack King Kirby. I think Jack King, he, yeah. yeah.
3: Um, but they would always kind of add these elements to the credits that made it fun for readers. You felt like you were in the club uh at that point. And so tremendously powerful splash page that pulled people in. And the other thing I would add is was Taranko in his machinery that way. I always found it to be kind of this fusion of Kirby's take on technology. Along with Wally Wood's take on technology, sure. as we did it through EC comics, so I always uh, enjoyed that. And then we roll right into this great close-up of Magneto on on page two, panel one. Which I, I mean, if we think of some of the all-time best shots of Magneto, whether it's Duranko here or burn where we got the classic close-up for half a page, just focusing on Magneto's eyes. What Artists could realize is that helmet was such a great design, and the way it would frame the eyes and everything that you just sell out and go for it, and and we get that right away, and the pronunciation that as far as Polaris goes, she is the daughter of Magneto, and you know this is also kind of the wonderfully overwritten, overscripted Marvel book of the times uh, that take us through that, but. Right away, I mean, Dranko sets it up. He takes us through with a shot of Magneto. Then we get to Polaris. Then we see the four different X-Men, uh, along with Ice, who is there as, and is totally conflicted with um, what this all going to mean. Because we get inside his head, we get his thought balloons. And yes, kids, there used to be thought balloons in comics. Um but that's where he's obviously got this conflict going because it would seem that he has kind of a um, an attraction of sorts for Polaris. So almost
0: uh, a, almost like an ownership of her. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but he's like, she's yeah, mine, and, not and yours. Well,
3: do you think do you think that's what it was or is this more like servicing the reader so the reader really understood things?
0: Uh, I mean probably a little of both. We can look at yeah. it from the character perspective or the creator perspective.
3: Yeah. Uh in any case, it, it works out extremely well, just in terms of by the time we get to the bottom of page two, I think we understand what the conflict is. And from a writer's perspective, and that's why I talked about serving the readers, from a writer's perspective, that is so important. Just, you know, by the time we get to the bottom, we need to understand who the players are and we need to understand what the conflict is. And by the bottom of page two, where we're we've got the camera shooting from between. Magneto's ankles right into the X-Men. It's just a a wonderful vehicle to fill us in because I think it's always important to note that during those days, uh, probably half the readers hadn't picked up the issue before, probably 10% of them. Maybe this was their first issue of X-Men of those might've been their first comic book. So getting that information into the brains of the readers was um, a highly you know, regarded skill at that point. And then, you know, page three. Um, you know, Bobby is still going after Magneto, never mind all that jazz. And he's pretty much if if you want to talk about taking ownership of Polaris, he's certainly taking ownership of the scene at this
1: point. Mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, we, we work our way down, then into the second panel. Uh, you talked about loving the title. I, I think the Queen of the Ghouls, which Iceman uses here, is just, what a great phrase, Queen of the Ghouls. I mean, there's a title for a comic. Someone should do that as an image for Queen of the Ghouls, um, because I think that's just awesome.
0: It's a, yeah, that's a great title. <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, in panel, what, four, we get the wonderful silhouette shot, which saves an artist all sorts of time. And, <laughs> and especially then... Uh, really, what Storenko was wanting to do on this page is get the giant fist coming forward, foreshortening effect with uh, Cyclops, as he says, you know, you lose. And um, I wonder if readers who picked this up now for the first time read about a Donnie Brook, would they even understand what that is? I'm not sure I would have understood it in that moment. So, <laughs> did they get it or not? but we get the fist coming forward and the completion of that punch is what we see in the top panel of page four. That, you know, we get to that moment where Cyclops is clocking Magneto and as would happen with any, you know, Marvel book at that time, the fight is on. The
0: uh, the interesting thing that stands out, uh, and Stephanie, I would actually love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, Polaris almost comes across as kind of an object to be used here. There's this premise that because she has learned Magneto is her father, uh, Beast, Beast phrases it as her filial duty will like win out over her will. Uh, they, they never stop and say, Polaris, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you going through? But instead it's, no, you have to choose us, not him. He's the bad guy. Uh, and she never gets kind of a chance to speak for herself, which is an interesting way to introduce this character, that that image of her kind of holding her head where she's like, ugh, <laughs> it's I uh, I don't know. Tell me some of your thoughts on the portrayal of Polaris here.
1: Well, you're asking me, right, Dan? Right, Dan? Uh, Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. So, you know, you can look at it two ways. I don't know so much of the back history before this issue of, of what her personality presented, but you can she, see it as- She hasn't
0: had any yet.
1: Okay, so, okay. <laughs> Okay, so I can interpret it as, one, she's utterly confused and that paralyzed, right? She has that shocked deer in headlights look, you know, that's just how she is. And yeah, maybe she does need saving because she's that shocked and that conflicted. Or, right, you can take the angle of like, have you given her a chance to talk and express what she wants? Like, I certainly don't know if she wanted the almost kiss from from <laughs> from Iceman, but we'll get to that part um, so I can, I could see it two ways, but you know, a lot of the women were portrayed this way, you know, Jean Grey always faints. Um, <laughs> we can go through all the other little things that, that happen like this, but I can certainly see it as her, just simply existing as being confused and vulnerable and maybe paralyzed. Sometimes, you know, you know, as a therapist, that's how you deal with shock and trauma, there, right? There. You get, you've been paralyzed or let the girl talk and figure it out. <laughs>
0: Um, or we can just blame Mesmero. Mesmero's got oh, that's uh, right hypnosis powers. I I kind of think he's just messing with everybody a little bit in this, uh, which is an interesting way to view it. He's he's not a he's not a nice person. We learn much later in continuity, and this is retroactively added. But again, this is a robot version of Magneto that Mesmero had built to make himself look more important. (laughs) Like, like, look how great I am because I've got this this master of magnetism at my side. There's a great moment in uh, Leah Williams' run on X-Factor and Trial of Magneto where uh, Polaris is interacting with Magneto, who is her father. And uh, she she kind of turns to him and she says, "Can you even tell me what my personality is like?" And he doesn't really have an answer, kind of indicating he has expectations of her. Bita doesn't know her really well, and perhaps she doesn't even know herself that well. Uh, we'll see a lot of development in this character. We'll have a lot to say about her in future episodes. But uh, but I love her. I think Polaris is a, is a Lorna Dane, as she's called here, is a is a really lovely uh, character. Anas, any thoughts on on Lorna's portrayal here?
2: So far, I have to say, like, every time I read one of those older classic X-Men books, I am just taken by how charming they are. They're just, like, bombastic. They're oozing charm. Every character is, like, so loud and has such a loud personality. And I think that that's where Lorna Dane here comes short, because they don't really give her a a time to shine. She's treated as this object of Iceman's unrequited affection, in a way, and he's trying to save her her from herself, I guess. Uh, But she doesn't really get a chance to speak her mind or really make her voice be heard, even though we know her now to be like one of the most powerful mutants out there and one of the most, you know, capable women in the X-Men. So it's it's a bit of a shock to see see her that way because I know her so well and I love her as a character. But again, I'm just so like charmed by everything else going on and by the beautiful shots and the panels that is just, you know, what I'll I'll let it slide. It's, It's for the times.
0: Uh, if we jump back to page two, I always love a dated reference. We get to see Iceman trying to argue that Polaris, uh, convince Polaris that Magneto's bad. Uh, he he basically says, uh, tell her how you've used your mutant powers to feed your own Magneto. Tell her uh, your uh, mad, mad ego, excuse me. Tell her about the lives you've taken, the fortunes you've stolen, the misery and misfortune you've been spreading around with a trowel. Tell her that you're offering only a half interest in a bloody empire that would make Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun look like the Smothers Brothers. So <laughs> <laughs> the smothers brothers you can google them are a classic comedy duo of course uh it's uh, it's kind of fun and and i think uh, dan you really nicely captured the the building tension i think that they're trying to portray here the uh the weight that's being placed on the decision that the, uh, the the devil's daughter or the queen of the ghouls <laughs> has to make uh, as, uh, as she's picking sides. Uh, I, I really enjoy the launching of the conflict as well. We, we see Iceman in the 60s occasionally use his powers really impressively, uh, often not very impressively. But here we see him kind of drop uh, 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 kind of a freeze wave across the entire floor and just capture the whole army in a bunch of ice up to their knees uh, and these these this army they're fighting, again, are, are supposed to be mutants. We see a couple of them use powers here, but none of them are clearly identified, nor are they characters that have been identified in future uh, storylines. Uh, Stephanie, will you take the next five pages for us? Uh, tell us what happens Can I,
3: can I throw something oh, out really oh, quick? please. Yeah, yeah. And, and this goes um, to the question, I think, of agency a little bit with Lorna. And uh, on, you know, page four... Uh, because this was relatively unusual at that time, we get the silent panel of Polaris with the hands to her head mm-hmm. and I think that is an incredibly powerful panel because typically in those days, uh a silent panel, which is something Stranko did a lot of on the shield work, but you weren't going to find it in many other books and as I interpret it, that panel being a silent panel with no dialogue, no balloons coming from off panel, nothing else, no sound effects. That gives her tremendous power on the page right there. And yeah, we might not be getting inside her head, but I think we so realize the importance of her in this scene, that that's what we get there. Um, And again, to make that leap, you kind of have to go back to what it meant at that time and, and how unusual that was. But it was a really interesting approach for them to take, especially since every other panel was so overwritten, almost, that this one really stands out. It's very important.
0: Yeah, well, and to jump to Lorna for just a second, for our future readers, Claremont did a lot with this character. So she hangs out with the X-Men for a while after this. Uh, Then she and Havoc have have their time as geology and archaeology students living in the mountains. Uh, and then Malice, uh, the Marauder Malice takes over her for a long time. She literally loses her will and her body for for an extended period of time in the comics where she is uh, literally taken over by someone who's controlling her mind. Uh, so uh, this is a character who's fought for her will uh, right from the beginning. Uh, Stephanie, let me turn it over to you for a few minutes.
1: Sure, even though I could listen to Dan all day, he could take the whole issue, I'm more than happy to, to come in. So for page six, We have four panels showing each X-Men fighting, and is this? Are these the Demi-Men? These orange Uh, Yeah, I
0: I think they're loosely called the Uh, Demi-Men. They never. There's when Mesmero first appears. the The issue title is the Demi-Men, but he never calls his army the Demi-Men. He just summons an army of latent mutants, and that's who these guys are.
1: All right, I thought it was better than me calling them the little orange yellow guys. Angel's getting his feathers singed by a blaster while he warns Cyclops that he's getting a helmet placed over his head that covers his entire face. And I can't figure out if it's horribly claustrophobic or PG-13 under crowd. uh, Close your ears or if it's something out of an S&M bondage catalog. (laughs) I got a little bit of like original Wonder Woman. You know, bondage vibes from that one, um, probably because I read too much on that, on, on, on the whole origins <laughs> of Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman, um, while Beast is dodging uh, metal spike mines and Marvigal is projecting a wall of mental energy around, I think it's Ice Iceman, she's protecting someone. Um, When we go to page seven, like much of the comic, everybody's talking through what they're doing. Um, We see Cyclops blast through his helmet successfully, somehow not singeing his face and melting his face from the blast or having any uh, sharp sharpener in it. Um, And a really cool panel five. I love that panel five, a close up of the team uh, rebooting. And Magneto takes advantage of their pause for Iceman to recoup and flings a stream of metal sharp sharpness at them. But I really love that one, two, three, four. Yeah, panel five was just. Awesome with Cyclops, kind of. I,
0: I, I chose this section for you because I know what a Jean fan you are, and she wasn't yes. in the, the last time you came on. She wasn't in the issue, so I'm like, oh, we need to give Stephanie Jean's action shots.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the the horror. You gave me a show without Jean, but that was I had a blast with that issue. That was so fun. <laughs> so on page eight, we have another four cool panels of art that uh, include Marvel Girl. <laughs> um, she has a shield with. Uh, she's making a shield in yellow waves deflecting. I really love all the little line movements here, and then we get. Um, sound effects, whoosh, kalang, yow, and kriz. Um, I really like the lettering here and the sound effects. And Angel is taking a hit. Um, moving to page nine. Cyclops got his um, he's got his rooster feathers up, as I like to say, although inside <laughs> <laughs> inside he's really straining. Uh, Lorna Dane is asking Magneto why they must die. The X-Men in his response, maybe more so in the next pages. But I interpret it as like kill, 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 kill the X-Men. So that's just his answer for everything. Well, Marvel Girl is in an iron uh, pickle uh angel is asking for them to retreat feeling overwhelmed and then for my pages we end on page 10 with um but the demi men or the orange guys form a chain to block them from retreating and cyclops finds out as they become weird clay shadows that look like mr gumby to me the demi men like all of a sudden they morph into these stretchy black Purple, blue—it's really cool. Thingies. Yeah, there
0: there appears to be one mutant who has the power of quote negative energy. So yeah. he turns into this kind of weird—I uh, don't know—like face in a shadow. Uh, so it, we're reminded that this army does have powers, even though we don't see most of them used.
1: I call them the Mr. Gumby Army. They look like little Gumby. I don't know if any of you remember Gumby. Um, An angel gets wrapped uh, in their barbed wire, and the Demi Men uh, give a detailed description of his upcoming death. And angel lets us know he concurs with his response with the arg and the og the, the, the and all his uh, great lettering. I loved it.
0: In uh, page 10, panel one, where they're all joining hands, I figured either they're trying to play Red Rover, Red Rover, <laughs> send Cyclops right over, or they are the who's Down from Whoville singing da Who do re like-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or it's a seance, you know. It could be a oh, that's of-
0: true. It could be a seance <laughs> as well. I think uh, Strenko's pencils through this are just gorgeous. These fight yeah. sequences, every character shines. It's uh, beautiful. The shrapnel images uh, where Jean's deflecting with telekinesis is maybe my favorite shot in the whole book. Uh, really, really lovely, uh, Dan. Do you have any thoughts on the art in this on this section?
3: Well, I find it tremendously interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. And um, if you really start to dig through the art job, uh, one of the first questions I would ask you is, "Where in the world does this take place?"
0: They are in the desert. They are in the right. city of mutants that Mesmero built in the desert.
3: Right. But what I'm saying is, is you in looking at this, you honestly don't know that. Right? Yes, you yeah. don't know you don't even know if you're outside or inside and and a lot of it is we get an awful lot of <clears throat> excuse me uh <clears throat> panels without backgrounds and so this is where I tend to believe again that yeah this thing was coming together in a hurry as an art job that because there there really is no sense of place we have the wonderful exotic stranco machinery but even as we go through, Um, we don't really have a sense of inside, outside warehouse. Uh, if we're inside a place, there's no, you know, exterior establishing shot. Uh, if we're outside in the sand, we don't know that it's, it's a story that takes place in a really very unidentified location.
0: Fair, fair, uh, realization. Um, uh. Uh, Anas, do you want to take us through the the last five pages of the story?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So on page 11, after finally realizing that the X-Men will not be able to defeat Magneto and his demi-man at this time, Cyclops decides to bring the whole roof down on Magneto. And they finally decide to make their retreats. Unfortunately, they are caged in. And at which point uh, Cyclops asks uh, Beast to make a hole in the wall with his body, a human, a man-sized escape hole, as he refers to it. And he mashes his head like smashes his head into the wall. With the sound effect, (laughs) (laughs) he he basically gave himself a concussion. I had no idea that 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 Beast was basically a juggernaut at this point, but it was very uh, funny for me to see. Uh, They make their escape and they are uh, basically steal one of the ships of the Demi-Men. Uh, but they are discover discussing how they feel bad for leaving Lorna back there. And Iceman is really upset. He basically says that they, you know, she was, she was, she did what she had to do, was she's protecting her father, and they couldn't really um help her. In the following page, Lorna is freeing her father from the uh, rubbles that he was stuck under, and he, you know, passionately exclaims that he has to kill the X-Men, which is something that echoes in his mind at all times. And The following panel, we were well, he, to... he
0: also notes that the ceiling collapse has paralyzed him. Uh, oh, yes, which he paralyzed, which, which I, I think it just means the robot circuits got <laughs>
2: overloaded. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that you mentioned that, that makes a lot more sense because when I was reading that, I was like, okay, was that like a thing where it's like you you were paralyzed for a few days and then you get your feet back on? Okay. <laughs> Um, I think, forward, the, they, I think
0: that was the marble method. The writer had to come up with a reason why Magneto was not chasing these guys down. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then they were like, he's a robot. That's why. Uh, several hours later, they returned to their temporary headquarters in San Francisco, where Bobby is very distraught and he's really upset. And he's getting a stern talking to by Cyclops, who was basically telling him that he has to get off this mission because he is no longer, uh, subjective. he's no longer objective because he's emotionally involved with Lorna. This causes Bobby to like get super upset and he jumps at Cyclops and they begin an altercation where they're about to fight and throw hands. Uh, They go back and forth a bunch of times until a very, very zany gene is like, wow, we did all of this training just for you two to like fight. (laughs) We became one of the strongest and best fighting teams that ever lived and you're going to throw it all away so you can, you know, be idiots and fight it. Uh, At which point, Bobby basically storms out, slams the door behind himself, and Cyclops is like, this is for the best. And this is where the initial story ends off before the 15th page introduces Eric the Red, who appears in the desert several days later in the Wasteland. And he's discovered by uh, the R-scope. He emerges saying that he is basically way more powerful than Magneto. He can match his mutant mastery. And this is the basically the teaser for what is to come.
0: Uh, he's firing blasts out of his fingers. Uh, no, uh, this is legendary in the X-Men. This character, Eric the Red. Eric the Red is, of course, a famous Viking warrior that was born, I think, in like the 900s and settled Greenland. Uh, we see, uh, we, we're going to learn in the next issue, so spoilers, that this is actually Cyclops in disguise. He has rechanneled his optic blasts to come out of his fingers, with a boack sound effect. Uh, and this is weirdly like unto what happened in the Cyclops in the recent X-Men run, in which he creates the cover identity of Captain Krakoa for himself and like rechannels his energy in different spaces. So for our modern readers, you can look into that. We're gonna talk a lot more about Eric the Red next time, but uh, any thoughts on this uh, costume design or the portrayal of this kind of last page reveal?
2: I absolutely love it. I think this whole issue, I uh, mean, pencils wise, it's gorgeous. Uh, as you said, you know Jean has some great moments in this book, and I'm a huge Jean fan. As Stephanie is, of course, uh, so I was very, very enjoy, very much enjoying that. And what really, like, um, what really stood out to me was that her mask kept shifting according to the lighting, which is not something that we what I've noticed before. It kept basically on the lighting. It gave a reflective dark shadow, which makes me feel like it was a metallic material more than like a uh, spandex, which is more so what is portrayed as now. So I really enjoyed that she had different looks for her mask every time she moved around.
0: Chris Claremont loved to put his characters in, uh, I don't know how it's to phrase it, but like bondage gear. You think of like the Hellfire Club. Uh, he likes to strap people down in leather. And, and uh, this is kind of the first portrayal of that in the X-Men. This Eric the Red costume is very, is very, uh, the cover of some leather magazine somewhere with the horned <laughs> helmet uh, I almost wonder if that's where he got some of his inspiration for costume designs later. Uh, Dan, what were your thoughts on uh, Eric the Red or just kind of how this story culminated?
3: Well, I love the costume design um, just because, again, it's very Steranko, which was overall, you know, very different uh, for that time. I would also say, and this gets back to what I was talking about earlier, kind of a um, storytelling point. So the top panel of page 15—that's the best establishing shot in the whole story. Sure. I mean, that's really the first time you see where this is taking place, right? Um, so you finally get that. Uh, I think our scope probably stands for red scope. I don't know, um, but I just—I just love that scene, and uh, because of the costume and even the scene before that, you kind of get the hint we're inside. The, the new San Francisco temporary headquarters. We don't really know what it looks like because we didn't get an exterior view. We do shoot through the window. So we go, okay, it's a, they have normal windows. It's not like an office building, um, <clears throat> but it's just, it's a cool ending. And, you know, for a story in which not a lot happens, what's nice about it is by the time we get to the end, there's at least uh, something dangled in front of us that we want to come back and see next issue. and character
0: Uh The most underutilized characters, I think, in the 60s from the main team are Iceman and Jean, and I think they get to shine most in this issue, but we also really see Cyclops step up as a uh, leader of the team in a lot of ways here. Uh, Stephanie, what did you think of the Gene of it all in this issue? Were you pleased?
1: I was pleased she was there. I liked her eye makeup. <laughs> <It was awesome. laughs> um yeah it was great uh it was great seeing seeing marvel gold you know i'm so used to her just being phoenix for me so it was good to see her in her marvel Gold for, for form um you know and these issues just remind me of everything i really love on co- about comics in that you know not a lot not a lot happens but yet a lot happens you know emotionally you know the fight the the, the struggle between bobby and cyclops um you know just i love wordy comics i mean this is my era this is what i love i mean my my brother would you know probably nowadays like the sort of kabang boom you know the faster stuff but this is everything i love in comics right here the art storytelling lettering
0: uh Fully recognizing that this was not the intention of the writers at the time, but these are characters that have existed for decades and we go back and add motivation to them based on future storylines. So we learned a few years back that Iceman is gay. Uh, I think writers through the 70s and 80s and 90s regularly hinted that he was gay. Uh, But in the 60s, that was not at all the intention. I've literally asked Roy Thomas that question. He's like, nope, he was straight till they made him gay. But the interesting thing to do with this character as we analyze these relationships, he has been dating uh, Zelda Kurtzberg, the coffee shop girl that we love so much. Uh, And uh, he had his first kiss with her on his 18th birthday. And she's kind of just forgotten here. Uh, We see last issue, uh, Lorna Dane shows up. She's been mind controlled by Mesmero. He literally sweeps her off his feet, brings her home and is like, you're mine now. And there's a really interesting component to that. He's very grabby, possessive of her in this issue. Uh, Now, speaking as a a gay man who dated uh, women before coming out, I think for some people there's bisexuality, but for many others, there is this idea of uh, when you're in the mindset of you're being ashamed of being gay. Uh, There's this need to kind of surround yourself with people that inspire you or that can help you pass a straight or even someone that you uh, that you like enough to feel comfortable around Uh, you, you know what the society's standards of beauty are. So, there's almost an interesting thing here where this is literally, besides uh, the Scarlet Witch and Jean Grey, this is the first mutant girl that Bobby's ever met. (laughs) And he's like, it's almost like, oh, this is someone that I can date, that I can have for my very own, and I can fit in better. But we know from future writers, he's just crushing on Angel through all of this time. Uh, There's something a little bit misogynistic about Bobby's portrayal in this issue and the next few. Uh, but it's also a little bit heartbreaking. Uh, of course, Lorna's is not super interested back. She's going to she's going to fall for havoc pretty shortly. Uh, but uh, I don't know any thoughts on the Bobby Lorna dynamic based on that kind of retroactive space.
1: I mean, I, I texted you this like, you know, um, you could hold my door. You could save me. I'm, I'm I'm in it. That works for me. Um, You know, maybe if Lorna's face wasn't just she has this like deer in headlights look while he's kind of approaching her. You know, that's kind of weird. Um, but you know, it is what it is for the time. And, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the issue, but it it wasn't weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, do you have any thoughts on that, on the application of what future writers reveal about characters and then going back and analyzing their original, uh, appearances. Any, any thoughts on that? I think it's really hard to do, uh, you know, but
3: there are times when, uh, writers will get together and and would have said yeah you know this character is this this character is that something like that and they'll never spell it down on the page and everyone sort of writes it with that understanding i think the farther back you go the harder that gets defined however so i rather doubt um it was there with bobby at this point um
0: yeah you got to put it in there (laughs) yeah exactly yeah i think so
3: i think so at the same time, you know, what writers also have to realize and editors is that they're they're asking readers to make this tremendous investment. I don't mean financial, but emotional investment in their work. Yeah. And so if these characters take on a sense of importance with us all, so if we start to feel like that's there, that's a perfectly valid response on the part of readers to do that.
0: Fair, fair. And also, did you have any thoughts?
2: I just thought that you know, as, as, as you mentioned, Chad, that he was basically looking for a beard um, and he just wanted someone that he could basically be, you know, because at this point, the only girl that was in Bobby's life was Marvel girl. And she was, you know, quote unquote spoken for uh, because, you know, she had, you know, Cyclops had been fighting for her at this point. So was angel and beast. And then I stand kind stand of like in the background because there was no way she was going to get with him. So, as you said, I feel like when he saw Lorna and he kind of connected with her and she was like this, badass strong powerful woman he was kind of like you know taken by her and he either wanted to like you know be her bestie or you know be his be be her beard She had green
0: hair. I think he loves Wicked, and he's like, <laughs> "I can have my very own Elphaba." <laughs> uh, and uh, jo- Bobby was never into Jean very much. We go back to X Men number one, and there's that infamous panel where Jean's getting out of the car and arriving at the school for the first time, and Cyclops and Beast and Angel are all staring out the window, like, "Ooh, look at the girl!" And Bobby's w- walking off panel, going, "Ugh, I don't like girls." <laughs> just, <laughs> just always, again, retroactive. Uh, let me cover the last page, uh, last five pages, very quickly this is uh arnold drake's exploration of beasts uh, origin story uh we have pencils here by werner roth uh, inks by john tardiglione uh, letters by herb cooper and uh edits by stan lee uh this is a random question uh for for dan i've been looking for information on uh herb cooper did you do you know uh, of herb cooper or did you ever know him i
3: i do not know him i don't know of him um because Certainly, by the time I was working, I don't recall seeing his credits in the books.
0: Yeah, I'll keep. Uh, I'll keep looking. I can't find anything on this guy. We like to do little creator bios, but he's someone I haven't been able to find anyone. So, listeners, if you're if you're familiar with anything about Herb Cooper, let me know. Uh, in the last issue, we saw Beast join the football team. Uh, he had some crazy moves, and it was nationally broadcast. Millions of people. Uh, there's a guy called the Conquistador watching from his uh, secret base in Iowa. <laughs> Now, this guy is not someone who's been used a lot. He did get a handbook entry where we learn his real name many years later. They reveal his real name is Orlando Furio. Uh, That's
1: hilarious. Sorry. That's funny.
0: (laughs) He is a mutant, uh, but we don't really know what his powers are. It seems like he can channel electricity through weapons, Uh, There is another mutant character named Conquistador named Miguel Provenza who fights uh, El Aguila, the the French flying guy in a Marvel Comics Presents issue. Neither of them are well-used characters. Uh, Conquistadors obviously are the 16th century kind of Spanish conquerors who went into Peru and Mexico. Uh, uh, We often think of that as not a kind term. We think of these people often as colonizers uh, who took over cultures and races. Uh, but this character, for some reason, has chosen that name. We know little about his mo- motivations, except that he wants to, uh, quote, uh, he has an incredible plan for, quote, total human domination. Uh, he's formed an army around him. He's got a guy named Chico, and he plans to steal a nuclear reactor, which we'll see in the next issue. He's been planning this for months, but he's been missing one key component, which is apparently someone who can climb a big wall. He he sees Beast on the news, uh, uh, or Hank McCoy on the news, and he's like, we have to get this guy to finish our plot. Uh, His army rushes at Hank after school. They're driving a dump dump truck down the road. Uh, Hank evades them, but then they capture him anyway. Uh, By tossing a net around him, he evades it. They grab his feet, drag him back, and uh, Conquistador finally shows up with his... Uh, His little, I don't know, tuning fork weapon and zaps him with electricity. Uh, We uh, we zap back to Professor X, who's forming the early team of the X-Men with uh, Cyclops and Angel and uh, Iceman. Angel's costume is very miscolored here in one panel as all blue, which is not how it looked. And uh, Professor X is trying to track Hank with Cerebro so he can recruit him for the team. And then we get the last panel reveal that Conquistador is going to force Hank to work for him because he has uh, Beast's parents, uh, uh, Norton and Edna, tied up in chairs. uh, And uh, I'll kill your parents unless you do as I say. So that's continued into the next issue. Uh, Any thoughts on the story or art as we briefly review Beast's origin story here?
3: This feels like a DC story to me. Why is that? It's all kind of pat, which is you know, in, so back then in comics, short stories were fairly common and you could take this story right now, you know, just the, the uh, capturing of parents alone could have been an entire issue, right? An entire tor- 20 page story. And it's, <clears throat> I've, um I'm always interested by uh some of the creators that jump between Marvel and DC in those days. And in some cases, the lack of comfort that was felt. So even though, Arnold Drake had been at D.C. where he created I think he created the Doom Patrol um, mm-hmm. yep. and, and, you know, which was sort of X-ish, obviously, uh, if we just say, oh, both teams, a guy in a wheelchair is the head of the team. I, I always sort of felt that he wasn't totally comfortable at Marvel. Um, and I think that kind of comes through in this story.
0: Uh, he he was on the book for a while. We we have a big conversation about him in a, a couple episodes before this, the Doom Patrol, X Men uh, controversy, um, and Arnold's place in the book. Uh, Stephanie and Anas, any thoughts on this final five pages before we uh, wrap up our issue?
2: Um, I will just say that you know I thought it was I, I've never really gotten much into the Beast's origin story, so this was a nice touch. I had no idea that. He was I, I remember him being a football star but i remember but my knowledge of beast is him being so ashamed of his powers because of the way that they make him physically appear so seeing him climb the billboard all that's like displaying the the score was such a shock him put having his shoes off and just like climbing in public to a to a cheerful crowd which is something that is very different from what he's you know seen they're doing later on because he was very ashamed of his powers because he was always saying like if i was to show myself or to show my my legs people would be you know uh, you know, would think he was ugly. So I thought that was a very interesting touch. And, and um, I,
0: ironically, he gets the codename Beast because he's a beast on the football field. That's where pe- that's where he, uh, he gets the name and then he sticks with it when he's in the X-Men. So, so- he likes this. He's the aging football <laughs> star. Uh, reliving his high school days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's always fun to see Beast. I mean, I don't know much about him. I find him charming. He was the character I would go to when I was studying... For my SATs, and I would look for his uh, vocabulary because that's how I studied for my SATs. Hence, the score I got. Um, so it's always fun to get a little backstory um, on Beast because he's charming.
0: He uses uh, he uses the word in this story uh, non mentis which I had to look up. I'm a writer too, but it just means not sane. <laughs> yeah, he always he always gives me vocabulary. I learned the word enamorata last episode.
1: <laughs> I'm telling you, go to him. Uh,
0: to <laughs> this has been an absolute delight. As we're wrapping up, I'd love to hear any of your final thoughts uh, just on our conversation today. But Stephanie and Anas, I, I love both of your company. And Dan, I'm so impressed uh, by, by not only your lengthy career, but just your, your charisma and talent. Uh, what a what a gift to have you share your, your thoughts and insights with us today. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank um,
3: you. This, was, this was a lot of fun. It's so nice to do something different.
0: We're uh, we we I I kind of built this weird podcast where we're mixing '60s books and professionals, and I don't know why it's working, but every issue <laughs> or every episode, I I bring four strangers together and leave smiling for hours. So I I uh, I'm having a great time, and I think I I think people are too. I I hope everyone is.
2: Um, I, I totally am. I, you know, this is a ple- it's an honor to talk to you, Dan. You're, uh, you know, an icon in this industry. Your work is, you know, incomparable. So I'm just I'm honored to be in your presence to talk to you about comics. So thank you so much for blessing us with your company. Yeah,
1: yeah. we'll fan too. You know what Hasbro <laughs> did to me <laughs> in a generation of kids with Transformers: The Movie '86 and killing off father figure Optimus Prime. You finished it off with the death of Superman. Um, It was an epic, I say this as a compliment. It was an epic moment in my childhood, um, just as a Marvel girl who back then, Marvel wasn't getting a lot of attention, um, for me to then look at Superman that was in the news. It wasn't just a comic book thing. It was all in the news. Everyone, oh, death of Superman, death of Superman, was very much a part of my childhood. And, you know, hats off to your amazing career.
0: Thank you. Uh, I reread your Thor run this week in preparation for this interview because I hadn't read it in years and just multiple times out loud. I was like, God, this is good. And I sat down with my children and was showing them uh, just this epic run. Just beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Den's like, stop it, you guys. Stop it. Uh, as we're wrapping up, let's uh let's each kind of let everybody know where where can people find you online? Uh and then recognizing this comes out right at the end of July, is there anything you can plug? Anything that is coming out that we should be able to look forward to? Uh, gray Malkin Lane can be found on Instagram at a gray underscore lane or on Twitter, graymalkin PP like podcast. I'm regularly posting content. And Dan, I'll be of course posting some of your uh your iconic stories and images as we uh as we advertise this episode when it comes out. Uh, we have a, uh, I'm going to do a three-part announcement really quickly. Our next episode, we do our monthly character trials. Uh, our next episode is going to feature the trial of Namor the Submariner. Uh, we have a great cast coming back for that. It's going to be really fun as we delve into that character. Uh, after that, we have the, uh, the wonderful colorist, Triana Farrell, joining us for a review of maybe my favorite 60s book, which is Avengers number 60, The, uh, the Wedding of Wasp and Yellow Jacket, uh, which is exejacent. We're going to have fun with that. After that, we'll be finishing up this Mesmero, Lorna Dane, Magneto storyline with Eric the Red, uh, and X Men number fifty-two with the uh, the featured artist uh, Ian Churchill. And Steve Orlando is going to be joining us uh, again. So we have uh, we have some great stuff uh, coming up. Uh, let's go in the same order for each of you as we do our our uh, outros here. Uh, Dan, Stephanie, and then Anas.
3: Uh, yeah, uh, you can find me at danjurgens.com. If you need to email me, there is a link there. So you can do so. You can always find me as well on Twitter where I am Dan Uh As far as what's coming up next, we are going to be, I think, announcing one project in San Diego, which is now next week. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure that's coming. So I can't mention it here. Have another well, one. If you, um,
0: if you do mention it here and then it turns out not to be announced, I can always edit it out. <laughs>
3: okay uh well okay let me just think of the correct order i believe we're going to be announcing um that i will be writing a tarzan a new tarzan series uh at dynamite um and i think that's gonna come out in san diego if it doesn't yes we will have to take this out um and then we have uh, a couple other things that we are not yet ready to announce because those won't be out until later or announced later in August.
0: Any convention appearances coming up for you, to
3: Yeah, I will be in San Diego, which will probably be thankfully, mercifully over by the time this is out. And then following that up right away
0: with Terrificon in Connecticut. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And then Stephanie
1: you can find me my website, stephaninapizzarillos.com. If that's too long, I'm on Twitter as Zoe Health, Z-O-E Health, and Instagram, I'm the Nina Galaxy. Um, if you are in Chautauqua, New York, uh, August 10th, I'll be um, giving a lecture and receiving the Janice Prize for Gene. I do need people to laugh at my jokes that have 90 references, 90s and 80s. <laughs> so my generation, come on um, and celebrate. And in September, I'm actually um, the first publication of my imprint, Janice Point Press, is going to be publishing The Funeral Singer. I'm diving into um, prose and um, uh, fine press and letterpress. press. I'm so very excited about um, that. It's a story set in 1922-1944, uh, Anatolia. Um, and limited 100, uh, uh, 100 print um, on the anniversary of the great catastrophe, catastrophe, which is the fire in Smyrna linked um, also to the Armenian genocide. So heavy stuff, mm. historical fiction, um, September, Janus Point Press.
2: Mm. And uh, lastly, Anas. Also- um yeah if anybody's interested you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NS underscore Abdulhaq uh, if you're interested in reading a poetic indie one shot you can check out my debut comic book Eleutheromania, which is available for free on my website and hopefully by the time this episode comes out I'll have an announcement coming out about my follow-up etherist, which I'm hoping to be put out sometime this year. And uh, again, thank you so much, Chad, for having us.
0: Uh, Such an honor to have each of you here. I I adore you all, and I'm big fans of all of your work. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Gray Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane.